Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Jobless claims climb. Almost one in four U.S. workers now asking for government help. Darkest winter, America's ousted vaccine chief with a stark warning. And a non-meaty opportunity? We speak to the CFO of Impossible Foods. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to all our first movers all around the globe. Great to have you with us on a day when our reopening reality begins to take shape. Let me walk you through what we're seeing. Germany and France are slowly allowing schools to reopen. Japan is lifting emergency restrictions in some parts of the nation and here in the United States. Some of the hardest hit states like New York and New Jersey are set to lift restrictions on businesses in the coming days. It's clearly a balance between speed and safety as the global economy remains very fragile. The United States has just announced that an additional three million Americans filed for jobless benefits this past week. That now takes us to more than 36 million people filing since mid-March. Fed Chair Jay Powell yesterday reminded us why it's so important not just to get lost in the sheer scale of these numbers. He said that now they believe 40 percent of people in households making less than $40,000 a year lost a job in March. The pain out there, he said, quote, is hard to capture in words. Families earning the least are bearing the brunt in this crisis. But clearly the pain is widespread. It was a warning about the risks. It was also a call to action. Powell saying that Congress will likely need more to do more to help. And we agree. Investors also heard the warning. Stocks fell some 2% in yesterday's session. As you can see, futures are pointing lower today, too. The mood permeated the Asia session, too, as well as trading in Europe, where the Italian government has approved a $55 billion stimulus package with additional help for small businesses, too. I'll quote Jay Powell. This is the time for more fiscal power, more spending. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I don't think there was a a timing mismatch there between what Jay Powell said yesterday with the warning. And we were getting it as we were talking this time yesterday about the sheer extent of the economic damage being done here and the fact that the gridlock in Congress is not good enough at this moment. This is a really big hole. I mean, this is an unimaginable hole here in the labor market, in the economy. You're going to see the, the economy just crater when we get these next uh, GDP numbers. And so this fiscal stimulus is supposed to be this bridge over that hole 
from before the pandemic through the pandemic to whatever the recovery is going to look like. And what you're hearing from Jay Powell is that what Congress does now is what the recovery will look like on the other side. I'm also hearing a lot of economists, Bank of America economists, for example, are saying, this, don't think of this as, as before the pandemic and then the after. There's going to be multiple stages here, right? We're now in the very beginning of the transition. Uh, the recovery is still someplace out in the future. So the Fed support we know has been virtually unlimited. And now you hear from Jay Powell essentially begging, I think, Congress to, uh, to do something, not to play politics here, but to get some money deployed in more money into the economy. And the challenge here is trying to understand what recovery looks like. It's not a recovery that happens after some kind of natural disaster, nor a financial crisis, because the scale has been so big and it's been so global, which I think is what all these analysts are struggling to to predict at this stage. Just on a micro level, though, before Congress even acts, acts again, there are tweaks that they can make to programs already in place to try and support jobs. And you and I talk about this often. Give these small businesses more flexibility on how they can use the money, how long they can use the money for, too. And surely that will help some of these job gains, these jobs coming back also. I completely agree. And what I hear yeah. most about that Paycheck Protection Program is you have uh, small businesses who at the outset intended to use all of that money for, um, for to pay their workers. But their workers are getting genuine, genuine, uh, generous rather, unemployment benefits at the moment. And they need to spend that money to transform their workplace to the post-pandemic reality, maybe putting in different kinds of counters, maybe putting in different kinds of spacing, different kinds of bathrooms. And so they want some uh, flexibility of the use of the money and also the payment deadlines, the timing deadlines are are kind of arbitrary, given that this is not something that's going to be done in July and then be over. This is something we're going to be adapting to. So they're worried a little bit um, about that. You know, and I also was just looking at a New York Times uh, study, a survey rather, that found that half of the people laid off say they haven't received any jobless benefits yet. So, I mean, it's one thing you've heard the Republicans say, let's see how things are working before we spend more money. It's an acknowledgement that all the money hasn't gotten into the right places yet. Yeah. And even if it comes... It doesn't help in the interim with the financial damage, the pain, the uncertainty, the challenges and the mental state that that creates for the people that are struggling to put food on the table, too. The mismatch in timing is perhaps more important than it's ever been. Christine, the investor reaction Mm -hmm. yesterday, today, you and I have said all the way along that we're confused by the optimism that we see for investors. And the picture's not clear in the aggregate. Banks are suffering. Technology firms are doing well. But I don't understand the level of confidence here with so much unknown. I don't either. And you and I have, you know, on this program and in the hallways, we have talked about what's going on in the stock market when we know it is the most expensive stock market in in modern times. And then when the Fed chief comes out and says, hey, you know, this could be really hard and the recovery could be hard and there are a lot of risks to the recovery. And that seems to have caught stock market investors by surprise. Well, there's no surprise there that this is hard. We're in a big hole here. There uh, there's a lot of money, record amounts of money that's gone out out the door here, but just a completely uncertain in terms of the playbook going forward. You know, I mean, this rally, I mean, at one point I was looking at the NASDAQ 100 that was, I think, higher on the year. So, you know, there, there's just a lot of risk in the outlook, I think. And that's what was the um, a reminder on Wall Street yesterday about that. Yeah, a reminder of the challenges and a call to action to Congress. Christine Moons, thank you so much for that. Now, we're less than one hour away from the testimony from the ousted head of the federal agency in charge of vaccine research. 
Dr. Rick Bright is expected to warn that the U.S. is facing its darkest winter in modern history if the federal response to coronavirus is not accelerated immediately. Joe Johns joins us now from the White House. It's expected to be, I think, a very uncomfortable day, perhaps, for the White House when we hear this testimony. But, John, there's also been complaints from the Republican side that we should have investigated the claims that the vaccine chief is making before we make all of these issues and the grievances public. What do we make of, of what we hear today and some of the criticism, too? Well, we do know, first of all, that the Office of the Special Counsel looked into some of these issues, Julia, and the Office of the Special Counsel found that there is some evidence of retaliation in the background and that Dr. Rick Bright, the person who is involved in this controversy, ought to be given his job back. Now, he was let go from that office, demoted, essentially because he says he wouldn't sign on to things like hydroxychloroquine, which, as you know, the president again and again really put the hard sell on uh, for a while as a treatment for uh, for coronavirus. So uh, in the background, of course, in the big picture, if you will, of all of this is whether the Trump administration pays attention to science or disregards science if the president doesn't like the science, for example. And that's what we're hoping to get to now. We also know that Mr. Bright has, Dr. Bright, I should say, has put out a statement, and that statement uh, has a lot of warnings in it, and I'll just read you one of them. He says, our window of opportunity is closing. We fail to develop what he calls a national response based on science. He fears this pandemic uh, will get far worse, prolonged, more illnesses, more fatalities. And he says, without clear planning and implementation of these steps that he and other experts have outlined, 2020 will be, quote, the darkest winter in modern history. So that's quite a warning there, uh, if you will, from uh, Dr. Bright. Now, he certainly is going to get some pushback on this committee because there are people who say the United States Congress, the House Energy and Commerce Committee ought not be getting into all of this, at least at this stage. Among them, the president of the United States, who tweeted just a little while ago, Julia, I never met the so-called whistleblower Rick Wright, never met him or heard of him. But to me, he's a disgruntled employee, not liked or respected by people I spoke to, who, with his attitude, should no longer be working for our government. That issue of him being a disgruntled employee is expected to come up, up on Capitol Hill, and uh, one of my colleagues... Uh, has reported that if that does come up, Rick Bright is expected to talk about some of the reviews he's had in which um, he was seen as, you know, an exemplary employee. Julia? You raised some very important questions, though. If there are questions about the steps that were taken in the run into this virus when we had information, we need to know because it hopefully will change our behavior going forward as we reopen states, she says, with a degree of optimism. Joe, the president is not afraid of tackling his health experts when he disagrees. We saw that again last night where the president disagreed with Dr. Anthony Fauci over the timing and perhaps the difficulties of reopening schools. Listen to what the president had to say about this this morning. Anthony is a good person, very good person. I've disagreed with him. I think that we have to open our schools. Young people are very little affected by this. Uh, we have to get the schools open. We have to get our country open. 
We have to open our country. Now, we want to do it safely, but we also want to do it as quickly as possible. We can't keep going on like this. Joe, what do we think that means for the American public? There is an urgency. People want to see their children back at school, but there is also the fear of, of illness during a pandemic. This conflict between the senior most pandemic official and the president, how do you see this, view this? When you look at the president, it's very clear that he's on one course. He really doesn't have any other alternative than to try to get the economy started. And, um, you know, that is the hand he has drawn. That is the way he's trying to go forward. So when Dr. Fauci says things that don't play into his narrative, it's not surprising that we get pushback from the president on that. It's also clear, even from an interview in Fox Business this morning, that the president is trying to balance being complimentary to Dr. Fauci with also disagreeing with him publicly. And uh, that's a reflection also of some of the president's frustration with the fact that Dr. Fauci's approval polling in the United States is much, much higher than the president's, especially on issues of science. The public clearly seems to be listening to Dr. Fauci and his well-reasoned, if you will, explanations and information. And the president's aware of that. We also know the president does not like the idea of people who work in the government polling better or being more popular than him. So that's probably at play too, Julia. Yeah, the problem is you can't separate the economics from the science here, and um, it will be an ongoing battle. Joe Johns, great to have you with us. Thank you so much, and we await uh, that testimony from Dr. Bright later on this hour. All right, let's move to China now. New efforts are underway to test everyone in the city of Wuhan, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. Earlier this week, a handful of new locally transmitted COVID-19 cases were reported in the city. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong for us. Ivan, what do we know about whether indeed everyone is going to be tested, whether they're prioritizing the elderly? Do we have more information about how this is going to work? Well, at the start of the week, city authorities announced that this was going to be a, quote, 10-day battle to test, presumably, the entire population, 11 million residents of Wuhan in 10 days. Do the math, you're talking about a million plus people a day to be tested. That is a phenomenal logistical challenge. The testing began on Wednesday. We don't know if they'll be able to pull that off, but recall that this is all in response to less than two dozen cases of coronavirus that were discovered last weekend. And the fact that the city authorities have announced this, just it underscores the seriousness with which the Chinese government at different levels is responding to even relatively small outbreaks. And the same goes for in the northeast of the country. There are two provinces there that have detected about three cases in the last 24 hours. This Jilin province and Liaoning province. And you have the national health authorities, they are calling for stepped up testing and screening. They simply do not want uh, another wave of outbreaks spinning out of control, uh, resulting in the tens of thousands of confirmed cases and thousands of deaths that we saw in China earlier this winter. Mm. Julia? It, yeah, it's 
going to be fascinating to watch. And again, as we mention every time we speak to you, it's a lesson, I think, for other nations who are further behind in this process. Ivan, I do want to ask you about a, a separate but clearly connected issue. The FBI yesterday suggesting that China-connected cyber actors were trying to access COVID-19 research in the United States. How are the Chinese responding to those allegations? They don't like it. The Chinese foreign ministry called this a silly blame game. Let's take a listen to what the spokesperson had to say earlier today. With the current situation of the novel coronavirus epidemic spreading globally, any online attacks that impede the effort to fight against the pandemic should be condemned by the people of the entire world. What I want to stress is that slander and accusations cannot eliminate the virus or stop the pandemic. Now, this isn't the first time that the U.S. has accused China of being behind hacking of U.S. organizations. But what we heard on Wednesday was a statement from the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI that did not provide any evidence, but said that they think that, that China will be behind hacking of organizations that are researching uh, COVID-19. And we do know that there are separate uh, private entities like FireEye, which is a cybersecurity group, which has uh, claimed that there's just been a surge of what appears to be hacking of hospitals and research institutions and pharmaceutical companies that appear to be coming from China. Now, in the past, when these kind of accusations have come, Beijing has insisted that it, too, is a victim of this kind of hacking. I think it's very safe to say that any treatment, any vaccine that could come in the coming months or years for this terrible and deadly disease will be incredibly valuable, not just economically, but when it comes to national security as well. So it's probably not a surprise that uh, governments are on the lookout for this type of activity into something that could be very priceless intellectual property. Absolutely. And it's the opposite of working together, which perhaps we should all be trying to do during a pandemic. Scold war, as we called it before, cyber war now added to the list. Ivan Watson, thank you so much for that. Still to come on the show, venture capital in the era of COVID-19. Where does that cash that fueled the startup boom go during a pandemic? And with meat supplies disrupted by the virus, can plant-based alternatives seize the moment? We speak to the makers of the impossible for plant-based burger. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we may remain on track for a week open for U.S. stocks this morning. A continuation, I think, of the sharp losses we saw in the last two trading sessions. We also had yet another dire reading on U.S. jobs, an additional 3 million people filing for U.S. unemployment benefits in the past week. That now equates to some 36.5 million people filing for government help since mid-March. Let's talk this through and hopes for a recovery. Jason Furman is professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard University. He's also served as the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers under President Obama. Jason, fantastic to have you on the show once again. You know, I compare those horrific numbers to the numbers that we got on Friday, where over 18 million people were saying, look, I've just been temporarily laid off. 
are they right to have that confidence? And how confident are you that these are just temporary layoffs? You know, the answer, Julia, is a lot of them are temporary layoffs. But when you're talking about over 35 million people, a lot of them are not. If you assume everyone who reported being on temporary layoff was immediately brought back to their jobs, incredibly optimistic assumption, assume we didn't lose any more jobs, the unemployment rate would still be 9%. Um, and that's even with those temporary laid off people back at work. There's a lot, you know, a lot of underlying long-term problems that we're seeing in these data. That's where consensus now has the unemployment rate by the end of 2020. Is that too optimistic, Jason, based on what you're saying there? Um, I think that's too optimistic. I think in part, you know, it will obviously depend on the course of the virus. It'll depend on the impact the virus has on the economy. Um, but I would expect at the end of this year, a double digit unemployment rate. And by the end of 2021, um, I think an unemployment rate above 9% is, is more likely than not, unfortunately. How can we speed this up, Jason? Because we were just discussing earlier on in the show, it's tough to find a, a model for this. It's a recovery after a natural catastrophe that continues. It's a, a financial crisis star recovery of sorts, too. There, there isn't a playbook. How do we make this recovery quicker? Yeah, part of the problem is demand and liquidity. And the government's doing a pretty good job solving that by expanding unemployment insurance, by sending checks, by standing up lending programs. I think they need to do more um, aid to state and local governments and you know, add more guarantees into those lending programs so that they really are more effective. Um, the problem is this is also a supply shock and a liquidity and a solvency shock. And those are things that we have many fewer tools for. Um, we're going to potentially see a lot of reallocation in the economy, people that need to get jobs in different sectors. Um, that's a process that always takes a long time. So I would use the tools we have. We've used 75 percent of them. We should use 100 percent of them, um, see what else we can invent and, and stay with it as long as we need to. How much more spending, Jason? Does it even matter at this stage? Do we just have to spend the money as Jay Powell inferred yesterday? I think we need to do a lot more on the fiscal side. I think several trillion dollars more will be warranted. Um, my own preference would be that a lot of the policies include triggers. And so that would be as long as the unemployment rate is above, let's say, 6%, such and such policy, unemployment insurance continues. And when the unemployment rate falls below the target, then the assistance triggers down or triggers off. So I think to make it contingent, then you're spending what you need to, no more, no less. That's such a great point. And that will perhaps convince some of the uh, sort of deficit hawks, if there remain any on the Republican side, that we can allocate the money. It may never be used if it's not necessary. We often talk in economic terms about just building a bridge to a vaccine. Is that the cure all in your mind, given the depths of the economic damage that's being done during this period? Yeah, I worry that um, the economic problems will last longer than the vaccine. You know, if somebody's returning to their same original job, that is a fast and easy process. But employers aren't going to necessarily want to hire everyone back. They're going to figure out they can make do with fewer employees. They're going to accelerate whatever downsizing they were doing. 
And that's going to leave a lot of people needing to find new jobs in new places. And that's a process that historically just does not happen quickly. So I, I think the economic problems I would expect to last longer um, than the virus itself. I just want to quickly ask you again for, I know it's difficult, but where you think a reasonable unemployment rate is by year end, and I know it's crystal ball time and we simply don't have one, but what's your best estimate at this stage, given what we've seen in the latest data today? 12%. Really? With huge, huge error band around that, no yeah. crystal ball, but it made me pick a number, 12%. Yeah, challenges. Jason, great to have you on, as always, and to get your wisdom, as painful as it is to hear, Professor Jason Furman there at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Thank you for that. All right, yeah. we're counting down to the market open, and that's next. back to First Move. You're looking at the opening bell there at the New York Stock Exchange. We're open for trade this Thursday and the major averages are seeing a bit of pressure here, as you can see, for the third straight session. That's the picture. Another week read, of course, on U.S. jobless claims, too, as we've been discussing. Three million more people filing for unemployment benefits in the past week, a greater number, in fact, than expected. It follows that downbeat assessment on the U.S. economy from Fed Chair Jay Powell yesterday and more words of warning from investment heavyweights. Hedge fund manager David Tepper says stocks haven't been this overvalued since the dot-com bubble in the late 90s. It echoes bearish comments from Stanley Druckenmiller earlier in the week. As we've noted on the show in the past week, just a handful of big tech names have been some of the key drivers of the gains we've seen recently on Wall Street. The median stock in the S&P 500 down some 25 percent still from recent highs. The question is, how does one find value and investment opportunities at this moment? I tell you what, you ask an expert, that's how. Alexis Ohanian is co-founder and managing partner of Initialized Capital. He's also a co-founder of Reddit. Alexis, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You've advised hundreds of innovators of startups. You've also invested in them. Do you recalibrate your venture capital investment brain in this kind of situation? What are your views? Yeah. Well, you know, at Initialize, we are the first investors in a startup. And so we need to be able to believe in a founder's vision when that's, in many cases, literally all they have. And so in a recession, we're absolutely looking for founders who are solving what I would call real problems. Um, they're solving problems where there is clear demand, a clear path to profit, uh, and, and some real needs. Because what COVID-19 and, and now uh, I think this recession will trigger is expediting something we've talked about for really the last decade of software eating the world. Um, businesses are going to absolutely need to adapt to new technology because that's where they're going to find margin. That's where they're going to find scalability. And the companies that can do it will. And those who can't will need to either work with and, and pay for software from those who can or, or risk uh, uh, going under. There's so much in there. You've just called it a recession. This is a recession unlike any other. Are you looking for recession-proof companies? Is that part of the key to this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have been evaluating companies for really the last year or two with an expectation for some market correction happening. And with an early stage company, thankfully, there's not a ton of burn because, you know, it's a small team. They can all fit in one room. And so their costs are low. And it's actually... Ironically, it ends up being a great time to start a company. 
Um, we backed a, a company called Naza, which is a glossier for black and brown women. And beauty uh, is actually quite uh, recession proof. In fact, it tends to do better uh, because it is a segment that people can make an investment in, not spend a ton of money, but feel much better as a result. Um, and, it, and it tends to do quite well. Um, and we did have that lens in mind when we made that investment. And as we're looking at new companies, uh, we're very much thinking about how they can thrive even in an economy that, that doesn't look great. And they basically went mobile so that they could send packs out to people to take care of themselves if you can't come into a store and be taken care of. It's quick thinking. Smart, smart entrepreneurs really are able to the, the, the great entrepreneurs are able to adapt in situations like this. And Natanya, the CEO, her salon was open for about 20 days, the, the flagship launch location uh, in San Francisco. And then, of course, shelter in place happened. And she very quickly was able to adapt her business into a hair kit business um, that would ship out these hair kits. And then her stylist would actually, using Zoom, provide tutorials for their customers. They sold out of these kits within the first 24 hours. And, and yeah. now she's built a business line that she wasn't expecting to have to go into so quickly. But, you know, necessity breeds that invention. I mean, that's the hope. There are, what, 30 million small businesses in the United States. They're half of employment. You also invested in a company called Betterfin, a fintech company, because you recognized actually getting money out to small businesses, getting lending to small businesses is an incredible challenge. And, oh, boy, did we get the biggest example we could have ever seen in the United States with the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, it's been challenged. Talk to me about Betterfin and what the fixes are for what's currently underway in the United States and clearly challenged. Certainly. Well, you know, the Betterfin founders had a long history of working with the SBA to make it easier for them using software uh, to be able to get these loans out to small businesses. And then, of course, you have COVID-19, you have PPP, and you have a lot of small business owners who all of a sudden are now rushing to find out how they can get access to these dollars. It's a very cumbersome process um, and, and you know, it was rolled out pretty quickly. And so Betterfin's TurboTax-like software has helped literally thousands of small business owners already be able to apply for this uh, much easier, uh, just in the same way that, that filing your taxes before TurboTax was a, a pretty laborious uh, thing. Software makes a, a lot of these processes much better, cheaper, faster. And, and I think this is, in many ways, uh, I hope, a bellwether of what is to come, where we know small businesses are at the core of our economy, both nationally and locally, because those dollars, when they get spent at a small business, stay in the local economy. Um, but they're often not one of the most early adopters of software. And I think we're going to see a slew of new companies. I'm looking for those pitches that are going to help build the infrastructure to help rebuild and grow these small businesses. Um, and I think we're seeing traction here. There's, there was another company that just launched called Withco um, that was building this specifically for Charlotte, North Carolina. So residents there could get access to a sort of software infrastructure that would give them best in class software. Uh, so it's not just the Fortune 500 who get it. Um, but also the mom and pops. And I think this trend will absolutely continue, it, and it has to, frankly. Yeah, it does. I mean, this for me is the most frustrating thing. We see so much innovation and advancement and digitization, and yet it loses, it leaves behind the backbone of, of the economy. And then we get to a point like this in a pandemic where the lifeblood of the economy is starved in some way and the technology exists. Alexis, I want to talk to you about something else because you have strong opinions, I know, on, on privacy and one of the ways that we tackle this pandemic is tracing going forward. Apple and Google, they cover, what, three billion people with 
iOS and Android phones, they could be incredibly effective. Do we trust them enough? One, as companies and in general, giving up our data to be traced to try and tackle this pandemic. Well, you know, we've seen it work in other countries where the government has taken a more hands-on approach to doing this and, and in fact, also getting to put a bunch of people to work as contract tracers, which solves a couple of problems, right? Looking at our unemployment numbers. Um, you know, I think for me personally, that would be an ideal situation. I wish we were in a, in a, in a, a system right now where there was that high level of trust and that, that government could put people to work to do this kind of contact tracing. Um, at the same time, I know culturally here in the United States, uh, we, we have this desire to see innovation and technology and, and business, uh, the private sector, step up to solve the problems. The challenges are, I mean, Apple actually has a, a pretty strikingly good record on privacy. Google, TBD on that one. And I think customers over the years have now gotten more and more skeptical. That said, at the end of the day, we know contact tracing is a, a very important way to reopen economies safely. And that is absolutely what we need to do. And if the federal government, if the government is not going to do this, then literally our other option is the private sector. And so we as consumers as citizens need to decide whether it's with our votes or calling our representatives if we if we don't agree with this and otherwise accept that uh, we do need some solution and if the government won't fill it the private sector is is capable and um, and you know the good news is both Google and Apple have stepped up in, in making very explicit claims how they will use this data right. and then how they will this data after uh, we're done. Um, it's going to be very important to then hold them accountable to that um, as we move forward. But, uh, you know, certainly in an ideal world, yeah, this technology can save a lot of time, a lot of lives. Um, it's just a question of the, the sort of consumer perceptions. And I think I think we're changing that. I think uh, I think folks are realizing how important this is going to be and that Google and Apple really can make a difference uh, to help. So do, very quickly, do we overcome our privacy fears and put health interests first? Yes yeah, or no? I, mean, this is, <laughs> I, I think I, at the end of the day, there is nothing more meaningful to all of us than our health and well-being and the health and well-being of our loved ones. And I think yeah. this is what ultimately trumps those reservations. And, and yeah, we do decide, but, but should still absolutely stay vigilant. And, um, and then hopefully we'll be, we'll be really pleased with, with how it all turns, turns out. Alexis, fantastic to chat to you. Please come back soon and chat again because there's always not enough time to discuss all the things that we want to. Great to have you with us, uh, Alexis Ohanian there. Thank you so much and uh, stay safe. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, as meat processing plants close to contain the spread of COVID-19, opportunity knocks for plant-based alternatives. The CFO of Impossible Meat is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. meat producer Tyson Foods will cut prices on some products this week with short-term reductions of beef items by up to 30 percent. It comes as the prices of essential groceries soar in American supermarkets. Diane Gallagher joins us now on this story. Diane, and it comes, of course, as prices at farms collapse. So there's so much going on here. What are Tyson saying about the decision to cut prices at this moment? 
And so, Julie, I think that we need to be very clear about the fact that this is a temporary price cut that Tyson is talking about here. It's anywhere between uh, 10, 15, 20, up to 30 percent off certain cuts of meat for its grocery store, restaurant and other customers. Uh, and these are the popular types of meat that are being sold right now. These ground beef varieties, uh, ground roast and chuck. Uh, these are the meats that we're seeing really explode in price right now because of the increase in demand. So Tyson said that it's doing this, A, because of the exploding grocery store prices right now. Uh, yesterday, we reported out that according to the Department of Labor, uh, grocery prices spiked in the month of April by an average of 2.6%. That is the largest spike uh, in nearly 50 years, Julia. Uh, here's the thing, though. Meat went up even more, in some cases up to 5% in just that month. And economists say that because of these food supply chain issues, that's likely going to get even higher. So this does provide some temporary relief, what Tyson is doing right now. They also say that if they can continue to move more beef out, uh, that that can help some of these uh, the cattle ranchers continue to get through the processing. If you remember last month, uh, especially many of these plants shut down because of the conditions uh, that ended up with thousands of meat workers who were sickened by COVID-19. At least 30 of them have died across the country here and more than 10,000 uh, have tested positive, Julia. Uh, so they were closing those down. The president signed this Defense Production Act, an executive order underneath that that aims to keep the plants open. The plants have still been closing down, but they've been opening a lot quicker. Yesterday, 100% of the pork processing plants in the United States remained open. And so we are seeing a change in that stoppage, that bottleneck in the food supply right. chain. Tyson seems to be trying to move beef a bit quicker because the prices had gotten so high at the wholesale level that many grocery stores were trying to, or now having to pass that on. Customers said they simply couldn't afford it. Yeah, that Defence Production Act perhaps should have been used earlier to protect farmers, ensure the supply chain and uh, get food in the stores at grocers. But that is a whole nother conversation. Diane, thank you so much. We got it. Temporary yes. price cuts. Diane Gallagher there. Thank you so much for that. We're concerned about meat supplies in the United States opening a window of opportunity for some plant-based alternatives. Market research group Nielsen says shares of fresh meat alternatives were up by a stunning 250% in late March in dollar terms. And David Lee is chief financial officer at Impossible Foods, the private food tech startup. And he joins us now. David, great to have you with us. I know you're coming off the back of two record months as well for Impossible Foods. You said the last time we spoke the opportunity here is in meat eaters encouraging them to buy your products and not the alternative. Is this a pivotal moment, do you think, for the brand? I think it's a pivotal moment for Impossible Foods because 95% of our consumers that keep on repeating the purchase are mm. self-avowed meat eaters. But though we share the same customers as the traditional meat industry, the similarities end there. We have far fewer of those compromises that meat eaters have had to endure uh, and so we think it's a, it's a better choice for meat eaters. You also have production facilities, though, and we've seen that that's created huge challenges at the meat processing plants. Talk to me about the steps that you've taken to protect workers in the same way. Well, Impossible Foods operates very differently than almost any company that I have been associated with, and certainly different than the meat industry. 
you know, the meat industry has to grow an animal, a cow or a pig, has to transport it, has to slaughter it, process it, package it and ship it. And just as the animal goes to plants to turn itself over a period of years into meat, we skip the animal entirely. So we don't have many of those complications that you're seeing the current industry endure. But what we do have is a product that meat eaters can now take home from 2,700 grocery stores nationwide uh, and enjoy it the way they would enjoy meat from an animal. Soy protein is the main ingredient for the foods that you create. Where do you source that soy protein from? Because I do see a lot of that comes into the United States from China. Is China in your supply chain? And if so, is that a possible challenge going forward from a consumer perspective, I think? You know, we source all of our plant-based ingredients with the highest level of quality in mind. And in particular, the soy protein that we put in our product is grown here in the United States. Uh, it's important for us to understand our supply chain and, frankly, to pass on the ongoing savings in our supply chain to customers. I don't know if you know this, but we, back in February, reduced our prices 15%, and we will continue to reduce our prices as our costs go down. We, we like to share our cost savings with customers because our mission requires us to be plentiful and available everywhere. I, I want to talk about the price cut, but just to be clear, at no point in your supply chain does China uh, appear. Our supply chain is primarily from plants that are grown here in the United States. Uh, and wherever we grow our materials, we ensure that they are the highest quality. So no China. I'll take that as a yes. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure because I do think at this moment it's perhaps very important to be clear at where the supply chain is. Um, talk to me about balancing the lack of demand in restaurants versus, as you said, a, a 50 times increase, I believe, in 2020 in your retail footprint. Is that net beneficial? You've managed to offset what you've lost in restaurants with what you're seeing in, in retail. Well, you know, COVID has created challenges for many of our food service customers. We've seen them innovate. We've tried to innovate with them, and we are supporting them, uh, whether it's allowing them to ship Impossible Burger raw direct to home customers, or it's increasing the ability for them to participate with us in many of the give-back programs. You know, we've donated 100,000 pounds of Impossible Burger to frontline workers were doing an eight-hour cook-a-thon to serve the desperate need we see in the United States from those who are going hungry with, with share our strength and no kid hungry. But we are also focused on our mission, and we know that we were just scratching the surface with our successful launch in the fall, and now we're growing, growing our grocery business, 50x as you know, um, but it feels like almost every week we have a new grocer adding products to the shelf. Just talk to me about the 15% price cut as well. Was this about making this product more accessible at what you've agreed is a, is a pivotal moment? Because coming into this, there was a suggestion that the alternatives to meat are a little bit more expensive. And at a time of economic and financial difficulty, that could make a difference. Is this a plan to help and will it be maintained? This price cut, will this price cut be maintained? Well, our plan to be more accessible and affordable has persisted throughout the eight to nine years that we've been around as a company. 
you know, we believe that our products made directly from plants, bypassing the animal and all the inefficiency and problems with the animal, allows us to have at scale at least the same cost profile, if not better than the incumbent industry. And, and we know that that has to be shared in a great value with folks who are struggling today who want to buy products that are high quality at grocery stores with fewer compromises. So we've stated repeatedly, and, and we will state again today, that we will share our future cost savings with our customers. It's a commitment to expand the business of Impossible Foods globally. Yeah, the economies of scale, certainly helpful at, at this moment in time. David, fantastic to chat with you, and uh, thank you for answering my questions. David Lee, the CFO of Impossible Foods. Thank you. All right. Stay safe, sir. Still ahead, President Trump's about face on the US dollar and another market check. All that ahead and more. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move with a final look at the stock market action this morning. And the major averages are currently near their worst levels of the session. As you can see, down some 1.7% across the board. Stocks falling as we see data showing a further 3 million more people filing for U.S. jobless benefits last week, even as some states begin easing stay-at-home restrictions. The biggest jump in claims coming from the places like Connecticut and California, it course, follows Jay Powell's comments yesterday about the difficulty, the downside risks of reopening here, which I think is what's driving stocks this morning once again. In the meantime... The U.S. dollar bucking that trend on the rise, but perhaps a bit of flight to safety here kicking in. President Trump, a longtime advocate for a weaker dollar, said today that a stronger dollar is now in the best interests of the United States. The dollar trading close to three-year highs. That certainly doesn't fit with the uh, call on negative interest rates, but that's the beauty of having the reserve currency of the world. A reminder, we're counting down to testimony on Capitol Hill from the ousted head of the department overseeing vaccine research. Dr. Rick Bright expected to testify about missed signals and opportunities in the run into the pandemic in the United States in January and February. And a dire warning that we risk the darkest winter in modern history. That testimony coming up now. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.